Welcome to Energy Renewed, a podcast by ICF, a meeting of the minds in renewable energy where people come together to discuss ideas and synergies to propel the industry forward. I'm Katie Janik from ICF and the host of Energy Renewed. ICF provides technical advisory services to lenders, investors, and project owners for renewable energy technologies and processes. In this podcast series, we will consider varying viewpoints, ranging from policy topics to equipment components. In this episode, we are discussing unforeseen events and what to do to get a project back online after an unforeseen event occurs. Throughout my career as an asset manager and consultant, I've seen all sorts of events derail a project, either during construction or operations. Fire, wind, floods, and even pirates holding equipment for ransom. And each time the event occurs, there seems to be confusion around how to work through the insurance process and the resulting restructuring or rebuilding of a project. I always say people don't pay attention to asset management until something blows up or burns down. I say that figuratively, but on this topic and in this episode, it is literal. I find unforeseen events a unique challenge because of the related restructuring and rebuild, and because it requires diligence of process and documents and thinking outside the box to bring a project back online. To help inform us on considerations of what to do after an event occurs and during the process of rebuilding a project, we have Chris Pollack from the ICF Technical Advisory Team, Sandy Calvert from the Insurance Advisor Moore McNeil, and Eric Daniels from SunCycle USA, a company that handles remediation. ICF developed a three-part series to explore unforeseen events. This is part three, focusing on the technical aspects. Part two focused on insurance pricing and trends, and part one was a discussion on the commercial considerations of rebuilding and repairing a project. Hi, everyone. Let's take a minute for you to introduce yourselves and explain your expertise on this topic. Hi, I'm Sandy Calvert. I'm a senior vice president at Moore McNeil since 2014. Moore McNeil, along with our sister company, Stance, provides insurance consulting services to banks and investors for non-recourse project finance transactions. Hi, I'm Eric Daniels. I'm the CEO of SunCycle USA. We are a sister company of SunCycle GmbH out of Germany. SunCycle GmbH was founded in 20, uh, 2007 when I was serving as the CTO for BP Solar. And uh, around that time, we began a very uh, substantial, so to speak, investigation of field performance and uh, outages across our fleet. Hey, everyone. Uh, My name is Chris Pollack. I work with Katie in ICF's technical advisory group. Uh, I've been in the energy industry for over a decade. I've worked in engineering, design, development, and construction roles. I'm currently uh, working in, in the consulting field and within technical advisory. Um, and primarily, I've worked on the generation uh, side of the energy industry and uh, very interested and happy to be talking about this topic with you all today. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here. In parts one and two episodes on unforeseen events, we discuss the commercial side and insurance trends. And today we're diving into the technical aspects of the insurance policies and the steps to take to develop a plan for rebuilding the project. So Sandy, let's start with you. Will you walk us through what insurers are looking for under the insurance policy as it relates to damage at the site? Sure, well, an insurer is just trying to get to the bottom of a particular claim after you've reported the claim. 
They want to understand what the cause of the loss is to understand whether or not the loss is insured under the policy. Once they've determined that they have an insurable loss, then they're all about the damage. How big is the loss and how to quantify the loss so that they can reserve it on their balance sheet. Thanks, Sandy. And yeah, I, I feel like from the project owner's perspective as well, it's probably a little bit you know, nerve-wracking at first uh, <clears throat> if your energy project is subject to an unforeseen event that takes uh, causes damage and takes a portion of it offline. And then I, I feel like from the project owner's perspective, uh, after some of the steps that were taken and that we discussed discussed in the previous podcast, you know, really the the job becomes determining what has been impacted uh, from the event. And, you know, this may vary uh, based on the type of event, uh, whether it was a natural uh, disaster, whether it was uh, something that stemmed from an equipment failure, um, or, and it also may uh, depend on the exact type of technology uh, that your project is using, whether that's uh, something like PV or, or solar or a thermal project um, using conventional generating technologies. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I'm curious, Eric, as to your thoughts in terms of some of the methods uh, you've used historically to, you know, sort of uh, identify and be able to to figure out what has happened after one of these events have occurred. Sure. Uh, thanks, Chris. We tend to look at the world through defects and failures at these project sites, and the defects may stem from factory manufacturing conditions or have been introduced to a system component through its uh, life in the field. And so we generally look at uh, when we were called to investigate a site performance question or a damage assessment, uh, things like storms, fires, and uh, uh, theft are pretty easy to see. Usually uh, storm damage or hail, as an example, leaves behind a, a pretty clear path of visual destruction, broken glass and the like. Uh, but there's often unseen damage that occurs at these sites, and it may not necessarily lead to immediate power loss. It's something that can happen uh, over three to five years or even longer. Um, and we now add uh, another aspect to system uh, unforeseen events that, that result from um, the general aging of the fleet that's out there. A municipality, for instance, may struggle in year 12 to find the budget to replace key components uh, in year 12 that were in the original uh, forecasted model for the site, but uh, may not necessarily at that time have the money to uh, make that repair. Uh, the repair goes un checked and uh, leads to a catastrophic failure. And so we use uh, various techniques that include infrared, um, electroluminescence imaging, which is a lot like an X-ray of the panel. We do a lot of accelerated lifetime testing, uh, various uh, forensic tests that help us evaluate the health and remaining life of critical uh, polymers. Uh, polymers are used uh, like insulation on wires. Uh, polymers are plastics on the back sheets of modules all serving to um, electrically protect people from contacting this, uh, the electrical components, but also serve to insulate the system properly to avoid ground faults. <clears throat> and so um, uh, we have a lot of different techniques that we use that uh, can help not only discern the defect uh, and its probable 
uh, failure mode and impact on performance, but we can often uh, begin to tell when it occurred in the life of a system. There's a couple of interesting points there, Eric. I wanted to sort of, you know, maybe take some of them and ask Sandy what her thoughts are regarding the, when you said invisible damage and, you know, also damage that may not manifest or result in sort of performance degradation immediately. I'm curious, you know, Sandy, are are these type of things that you can't really see with the naked eye or that may not result in a performance hit like today, but maybe have reduced the lifespan of equipment or may or may not result in the equipment failure three to five or more years from now? Are those type of things, uh, you know, sort of applicable under under insurance policies for energy projects? So they may be. It depends on your expert's opinion. A couple of things involved in the analysis of that might be, were these things manufacturer or transportation defects? Um, If so, then those things are not covered by the policy. Any loss resulting from those are covered by the policy. So there'll be someone who's trying to discern the difference between the two, and it can be nuanced. As for future loss, that's difficult in somewhat of a gray area because the insurer wants to pay you for the loss that has occurred, not the loss that may occur. Now, there may be a difference in opinion, and there may be an expert that opines that the loss has occurred, you just haven't necessarily experienced the degradation. There's likely going to be an opinion on both sides of the aisle on that um, particular point. And again, it likely comes down to a negotiated result. Interesting. So in other words, you know, the insurer will have uh, technical advisors that they will engage directly with and the project owner on their side will have their own technical advisors. And for some of these less clear cut issues, in the end, it may sort of revolve around, you know, there may be no sort of consensus between those technical advisors and towards the end of the claim, it'll have to be negotiated in terms of some sort of monetary settlement or something similar to that. I would, yes, I would agree with that. But just to emphasize the point, I mean, the onus is on the owner, correct, to provide the information to the insurer on, or to quantify the information on the longevity of the equipment, correct? Sure. No insurer is going to show up to your project with a bunch of money and hand it over just because you say so. It's going to be um, something that your expert has an opinion about, as well as potentially evidence of a particular loss and how it occurred and why that falls underneath the terms and conditions of the policy and that insurer should pay. And on that point, the gathering of the evidence, Sandy, is that something that, you know, regardless if the investigation yields evidence of damage, is the investigation into damage itself, is that something that project owners can be reimbursed for under their project's insurance policy? Sure. It depends on the kinds of coverages they've procured. Often big, large insurance property policies include sublimits for professional expense, it will be sublimited, so it may not be for the full policy, maybe at a level of two and a half to $5 million on very large projects, but allows you to go out and engage an expert or many experts to help prove up the loss. 
and within solar plants, Chris, we're often seeing now an ability to apply tools that are common to other industries to diagnose the likely loss of longevity in, in the products uh, through advanced polymer testing. There are lots of different uh, methods for uh, looking at uh, um, you know, the dielectric resistance uh, of, of these plants uh, in order to avoid uh, you know, loss of power, but also uh, perhaps more significant uh, safety issues, um, you know, ground faults. These things all have very high voltage circuits and uh, the polymers that insulate those electrical circuits have to remain in place for a very long time, exposed to UV as well as the general environmental conditions. Uh, and fortunately, we can turn to tools that are common to other industries to begin assessing uh, the remaining life of a power plant now. And that's really kind of an interesting point about PV or solar in general in that, you know, if you look at PV compared to other technologies, particularly at a large scale, if you have a thermal, you know, project with a combustion turbine or a steam turbine, you have, you know, basically two main large pieces of equipment that are capable of generating hundreds of megawatts. Whereas um, at a solar facility in particular, you know, each individual panel is, is a very, very tiny portion of the the project's output. So you have projects with hundreds or thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of these individual, you know, pieces of equipment. So I think, you know, um, in terms of the investigation process and the, the evidence gathering process into these events, particularly for solar, it can be a very, very large undertaking uh, because there's just so many individual pieces of equipment uh, that may be subject to, uh, you know, of course, replacement if uh, if that damage yeah. can be demonstrated. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point, uh, Chris. Often, when we are working at a site, there's initial concern that the testing and investigation will be expensive. Uh, we often turn to statistical methods or uh, ISO standards for sampling a site. We don't need to inspect every component on the site, though there are many of them but we can find a cost-effective way to inspect and uh, test a small sample set and through that derive a good forecast for what the condition is of the overall plant and it's uh, likely loss of power and loss of longevity at a, at a good cost. Yep, yep. And of course, if your statistical investigation turns out you know, in high certainty one way or another, I think that's straightforward. But I think if you have a, you know, a sample set that doesn't give you yield a sort of very concrete result, I think there's a potential there to have to continue to test further and, and perhaps even test on an individual basis if, if the results are not uh, very clear cut. So that's actually a very interesting point as well. And a sort of good way to be able to try to quickly uh, rule things uh, rule things out. Yes, we, we recommend often periodic asset surveys with the intent to continue to monitor the health of an asset uh, before it becomes a catastrophic event. As I mentioned earlier, we have municipalities that struggle sometimes with budgets or uh, maintenance is deferred, a larger event occurs. And from from our inspections of a site, we pretty much can uh, create a menu of, of things that have to be corrected due to potential for catastrophic failure or 
risk to safety, things that an owner should consider uh, because it's a significant event looming on the horizon. And then uh, uh, sort of the dessert menu, if you will, uh, that are the things to consider over time as, as budgets allow, but aren't critical to safety or significant loss of performance. And when the, the claim is sort of heading towards its conclusion, you know, particularly about this issue, this gray area that we we're discussing with Sandy earlier about, you know, um, how you may, you know, you may or may not be able to demonstrate and the insurer is not going to pay for damage that may happen. And then, you know, it's typically settled. So if the claim is closed, and this is a sort of a question for Sandy, if the claim is closed and several years after the fact, uh, some of these issues, maybe systemic issues start to manifest, um, does the project owner have the ability to reopen uh, a claim on on the same issue that happened that might have happened years ago, or is are they sort of forbidden for doing that? Maybe as a condition of uh, closing out the original claim or the settlement associated with it. So I'd say that depends. I, I would always recommend that you attempt to close out all potential issues and current issues with the claim that you have in front of you. It's very difficult, I think, to come back at a later date. Uh, with information and try to reopen a claim. Uh, oftentimes there are things that have happened between the first claim and the attempt at the second claim that may have nothing at all to do with the claim that can also be used as evidence that it's not necessarily related to a second claim. So it's always my advice to try to conclude your first claim with as much information and as much evidence as you possibly can to essentially close out the claim. Sometimes we recommend, Chris, that the owner, uh, when we're trying to uh, find a means to cover a site for potential future losses that uh, in the settlement, there's consideration of an increased uh, allowance for maintenance over the, a, a specific period of time in anticipation of higher maintenance costs. And, Usually that's led to a good outcome and the owner is covered, the insurance is, the insurers are uh, okay with the outcome as well. Yeah. Which means that I think it's just even more important to make sure you have the right team in place so that you can evidence the damage, you can do the correct diagnostic testing so that you, you get it right the first time. I think that's and, right. And in terms of the evidence collection, Sandy, is there... Um, you know, would the insurer be quote unquote bankrolling that evidence collection? In other words, would they be compensating the project owner to go ahead and collect that evidence as they're collecting it? Or is that something the project owner sometimes has to do at risk? Uh, particularly if the insurer comes to the position at some point that the damage that the owner is claiming isn't either significant or isn't there. Um, is that something you've seen before with these claims? Well, that depends on the coverage that you've purchased. There are sublimits within the policies called professional expenses, which there are sublimited generally. So let's say you have a, a project that's worth $200 million. You may have some sublimited professional expense coverage up to, say, $2.5, $5 million, which allows you to go out and engage experts to prepare your opinion or to essentially gather evidence. So yes, if you purchase that coverage, if you have that sublimit in your policy, 
that's covered by the policy. And just just to note right there, though, that it's not necessarily um, an automatic approval, right? So I think that the insurance proceeds that reimburse the owners of projects um, for for the diligence that has to occur after an unforeseen event, it has to get approved by, you know, there's a process for approval of those funds to be released to the project owners. But then also, if there are lenders involved, then the lenders are also involved in that approval process. So that's right. You really want to take the insurer's adjuster as a partner in the process of the claim. That doesn't necessarily mean you invite them to all your meetings. You may have strategy meetings that don't involve the insurer, but you do want them to be involved at every step along the way to understand and essentially get their uh, agreement that the avenue that you are pursuing the particular claim so that you can't get advances along the way. Um, when you do that, the claim goes or flows much smoother. So you would, if it's a large enough claim, what you would want to do is start with an overall plan and a team of experts that will help you or assist you in developing your claim. And on that team really is the insurer's adjuster so that there's free-flowing communication and formal communication. So what we've kind of outlined today is the, the technical aspects in terms of the first steps to build a remediation plan, how to, to engage the right team, and then also the diagnostic testing involved in order to determine and quantify the damage to the site and then also to involve the adjust the insurance adjuster and the insurers into the process for rebuild. While we did not get into a lot of the details that I think involve this topic, I think we could talk about this for probably a few more hours. Um, thank you so much for being here today. I think we really have provided our listeners with the first steps from a technical perspective on on what to what to do and what to achieve after an unforeseen event occurs. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Katie. Thank you.